Fan, best friends, and ghoulish knights, and welcome to the 31st episode of Murders with Mertens. I am your host, Joe, and this is a podcast about horror, nature horror, thrillers, body horror, sci-fi horror, the horror adjacent, the psychologically terrifying, scary films in general. Each episode, I sit down with a guest and discuss one of their favorite scary films so we can gush about everything that makes it just so damned cool. Viewers, thank you for the support. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe if you are so inclined. It all helps to get the word out and bring some much-needed love to this little podcast. Audio listeners, the show is also available on podcast services around the world, like Apple Podcasts and Spotify, so don't forget to leave a rating when you stop by. Five stars is always appreciated. Uh, But enough of all that housekeeping, because it's Memorial Day weekend, the unofficial start of summer. And we have a banger of a summer horror film to discuss, but before we discuss that, I have the pleasure of introducing Graham Brooker with his Murders with Merton's debut. Graham, how the hell are you? I'm doing fine. I'm actually uh, feeling very great. It's a wonderful weekend. It's good to see my friend again. It's been yeah. too long. Yeah, well, we we did that, uh, you know, pray spoiler cast with uh, Lady Macbeth and uh, Phil Woodward. And uh, then Yaz's podcast about uh, Advent Horizon. Those were fun times, and we've talked about doing uh, something again. We just finally managed to make it happen, so that's cool. I love it. Yeah, yeah. Well, those were definitely good conversations, so I'm looking forward to this one for sure. Uh, so what have you been up to? Uh, what you been watching? What you been playing? Uh, I have become virtually obsessed with two different things in my life right now. Uh, one of them is I'm back living my youth in professional wrestling obsession. Ah. <laughs> the second thing is being completely obsessed with uh, Call of Duty DMZ. Mm. So I'm going in there and having my fun gaming and then tiddling and tattling with whatever great movies come along my way and just being as happy as I possibly can. Yeah, well, I definitely took the... Uh Oh, past six weeks or so off from uh, podcast stuff for a bit just because of good games coming our way. Um, you know, I had to work my way through the story of uh, Jedi Survivor as fast as I could because uh, ultimately we had Tears of the Kingdom coming out right on its heels. And uh, I've sunk a little bit of time into that. So good times, good times. It is another banger Zelda game. Um, but uh, yeah, other than that, just uh, watching Yellow Jackets as it comes. Uh, about to probably have my uh, my feelings totally destroyed with uh, the finale of Ted Lasso here in a few days. And uh, other than that, just you know, some of the same old stuff. Yeah, our positivity, Joe. Yes, you know it. Not necessarily toxic positivity, but yes, the good kind. The good kind. Um, yeah. Well, today's episode, like we mentioned, it's a banger of a summer horror film. And I know this one takes place around the 4th of July, so we're about a month early. uh, But this is still kind of perfect for the unofficial beginning of summer. Uh, We are here to discuss the perfect summer horror film, 1975's Jaws, directed by Steven Spielberg, based on the book by Peter Benchley, with the screenplay written by Benchley and Carl Gottlieb. Uh, also, with uncredited touch-ups and additions by Howard Sackler, John Milius, Matthew Robbins, and Hal Barwood. Um, all sorts of people chipped in on this thing. But, uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> We're going to need a bigger pod, Joe. Yes, we are. We are. We're going to have some things to talk about for sure. Uh, you know, interestingly enough, the, um, the, the actual novel, uh, the bulk of... 
the book that actually shows up in the film is just really the second half of the film. There's all sorts of plot points and everything else that were sort of left out or retooled. And, you know, there's supposed to be some kind of uh, B story of uh, Brody's wife having an affair with Hooper or something like that. And, you know, I'm kind of glad that just didn't make its way into the film. This film is sort of perfect. I definitely consider it one of the few times where the, uh, the movie is better than the novel. And the improvements made actually made it a better product. Yeah. The only Benchley novel I've read is uh, the one about the giant squid, the beast. The beast. Uh, Made for TV movie. Yeah. Not great. Um, Not not that I remember much of it, but I don't remember it being great. Uh, But I like the book well enough. But uh, yeah, yeah, it's kind of rare that you see something of an improvement on a book. Um, I... Just because I'm a you know clearly a sucker for Mike Flanagan, uh, I, I really enjoy his adaptation of Doctor Sleep. I think it uh, takes some things that um, just really did not need to be in a film from the book and uh, push those aside. And uh, you know, you got this perfect combination of adaptation of that book. The original, um, uh, The Shining, but also sort of a sequel to the movie. In addition to being a sequel to the book, it, yeah, I, th- I think it just makes everything sort of better. Uh, he did and, the same thing with The Haunting of Hill House as well. Yeah, and that's you know definitely a book that I have not read. Um, I think the only Shirley Jackson that I can think of that I read was just the short story, The Lottery, like most of us did. But uh, but yeah, yeah, uh, certainly, um, certainly uh, a, a fun adaptation there and um, great character study as well. So yeah, and that's something uh, to be said about this film too. I think uh, you, you I get. You know, just from, you know, environmental storytelling, just from the way people speak in their conversations in this film, you know who all of these people are. You've met these people. Yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, just uh, getting a little ahead of myself, but the scene where everybody's popping out of their respective offices or businesses, basically the town elders coming together to confront Brody because they have an idea of what he's about to do. Um, and you're like, Oh yeah. Yeah. And we know a lot of these people in modern politics as well. Um, power of capitalism. Yeah. Yeah. Nothing, nothing like late stage capitalism. Woo. Um, but yeah, yeah, awesome character study. The the amount of tension in this film, uh, <laughs> you know, we we were talking briefly about how the production was kind of a train wreck, and it's like this perfect happy accident that the film is as amazing as it is. Um, but yeah, just this lovely build of tension that I think. Um, John Carpenter kind of steals from in Halloween to a certain degree. Um, just because you barely see the shark, it's this presence that's always there. When it is around, it might just be from its perspective or, you know. Um, yeah. It, perfect. Perfect. Master class of tension. Um, and then, you know, 
I suppose if we want to dive in here, just with the opening, just the the, the perfect, you know, two notes. You, you know, you're always going to get this amazing score from John Williams, but this is <laughs> this is such a fun score. Even the stuff that has nothing to do with the shark, but uh, yeah, yeah, it's one of those film scores that is seared into people's brains. Um, you can just hear those first couple of notes and you know exactly what it is. It's, it's perfection. (laughs) There are a few things that are perfect in the world, but I am completely obliged to agree with you, Joe. Yes. Um, so yeah, just starting off here with the opening of the film and the score over the credits and the underwater shots, and we just cut to a bunch of drunk college kids having fun on the beach. And, uh, you know, guy catches this girl's eye and vice versa. And they go running off to go skinny dipping. And, well, um, she goes in that water alone because the guy's too drunk. And she gets destroyed in just spectacular fashion. I, I, Which I love I, that Spielberg's the one that does the initial pull on her. Oh, that's fun. Yeah. That's a bit of trivia that I never heard. Uh, but I love it. <laughs> um, yeah, I wish I could remember my reaction to seeing this for the very first time as a kid. I, I really do, because I saw this movie at a very, very young age. I had to have been maybe only five or six. Um same boat for me. It was one of those movies where my father like enjoyed torturously showing it to me because he knew it was going to scar me for life. And I grew up on the East Coast, so oh, you know our summer trips were down the shore. So it's like my introduction to the film was uh, it was the TV version. It was back in the day in the eighties when TNT would just show Jaws nonstop, like on repeat. So one day you sit down, you watch it. And and you go to the beach the next day and you're like, I'm 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 not going to go into that water. It's not going to happen. I'm <laughs> scarred. Yeah, man. Uh, it scarred a lot of people in its uh initial run. You know, there that summer of uh 75, there's all sorts of um you know, people that uh, saw a little bit less attendance at, uh, you know, their particular beach or, you know, resort or whatever. People were kind of staying out of the water. Um, kind of an man. irony based on what the premise of so much of the first half of the movie is, too. It's like trying to keep things under wraps to stimulate business for your town. And then this movie comes out and it hurts short towns. <laughs> Across the yeah. entire country. Yes. Yes. Um, yeah. It just mm, perfect. But yeah, I, I'm sure I was just terrified by it. Um, that That's kind of been my, my horror experience. You know, 80s kid. Um, they used to run uh, little uh, advertisements for horror films on primetime television, you know, fairly early on in the evening. And I'm sure they were a lot scarier to a young kid than uh, ultimately they really were. But um, yeah, man, that kind of stuff scared the shit out of me as a child. 
And then I think it was the typical, um, you know, like you have slumber parties with friends or whatever. And of course you're always going to rent some scary movies because, you know, what's the point if not keeping each other up, terrifying each other with, uh, these things. Um, so ultimately all that stuff just kind of helped, uh, foster that love of the genre and yeah. It's always nice when they take some form of real world horror, like something that can actually happen to you and then twist it into a way. And when you're a child, you're so susceptible to the belief of everything and you already have natural fears to the world. And it's like when you take something where it's just like body of water, it's like all of a sudden a pool will start to look dangerous to you because your mind just leads into that fact that there's just some danger that can always be hidden below a surface. And the darker the water, the scarier it is. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I'm sure there were people even uh, around inland lakes that, uh, <laughs> you know, had some uh, issues going swimming after seeing this movie. Um, for sure. But, yeah. Chrissy gets got in the beginning of this film. She's getting flung everywhere. It's I, I have some kind of like Mandela effect memory that she gets like smacked around uh, on the buoy that's uh, right behind her. But uh, now nah, that doesn't actually happen. Um, but yeah, uh, she's toast and uh, the guys just passed out drunk on the beach. Um, ultimately, uh, we just go right to the next day. We get the introduction of the Brodies. Love their dynamic. They are great. Um, they are they they're probably younger than I am now filming these roles, but they just look so old. It, it, Isn't it a strange thing about older movies? Like yeah. when you watch people, it could be the concept of going back to like when we first absorbed the movie, we were kids. But when mm-hmm. you see adults, they look so mature, they look so much older. And then it's like, you, you think about what their age are at filming and you're just like, oh man, they're in their mid thirties. And then I was like, I'm, well, I'm well past my mid thirties at this point. And I'm like, I don't look like that. I don't I, I still look I like a punk. I know it's just bizarre. And you think of like Max von Sydow and, uh, the exorcist and now he was in his thirties and he just had like a ton of old man makeup on <laughs> Or there's people like Walter Matthau that just looked like he was an old man since he was a young man. Yes. <laughs> Mature face. There are definitely those people as well. Um, but yeah, uh, the Brodies, they're just kind of waking up. They're irritated that it's summer and they didn't realize that they got all this extreme morning sun coming into their bedroom. Uh, their little back and forth is fun. It's like, you know, people in a Stephen King story that moved to Maine and have to get used to the, uh, the Maine accent. It's a very similar type of thing. Um, you know, they, they introduce, a fun little device that happens quite a bit in this film, uh, in this scene in the kitchen where Brody's having the conversation on the phone and, uh, Mrs. Brody is having the conversation with her oldest son behind him. And the conversations are overlapping each other and it's kind of difficult to focus on one or the other, but I think the, the, the technique is still kind of fun, uh, because there's stuff that you need to glean, from all of the conversations when this stuff is happening throughout the film. Um, I don't know. It's just kind of neat though. 
I like lends it. to multiple rewatches. Always something to pick up each time you go. Yes. And I, I really loved like the um the organicness of the relationships. They feel <laughs> like people that have been married for years. Oh yeah. And have just moved from New York. Like it doesn't feel falsified. And it's like you're almost just like, man, it's one of the things I love about this movie so much is the interactions between the people. They feel correct to the time periods that they spent together based on how the Brodies are this tight-knit family, but then they're still kind of outsiders on their first summer on this island town, and everyone else feels like a stranger to them that they're starting to meet and formulate new bonds with. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, uh, so basically he's gotten a call that um, there's a girl that's been reported missing and he needs to take off, and uh, he does. Um we cut to the beach where he's walking along with the, uh, the kid from the evening prior who, you know, doesn't want to be considered a suspect. He's like, Hey, I was the one that reported her missing, blah, blah, blah. Um, and next thing you know, they've found the little bit that's remaining of her corpse. Um, Very and it's, bit. yeah, it's pretty gnarly. Uh, there's crabs, um, feasting on the remains. Um, and we get this awesome jump cut from here of the deputy who is having a hard time with it and the kid sitting there in the, uh, police station and probably drinking some Alka-Seltzer or something like that. I assume that's what that was. Um, the, the kid is totally in shock. Um, the deputy, you know, he's not exactly doing a Deputy Andy thing from uh, Twin Peaks where he's, you know, sobbing or anything like that. But, uh, but yeah, it was a lot for him. First time um, they've seen something serious in a long time. Yes. Yeah. You're, you, they have absolutely painted the picture that this is a sleepy little island resort town and nothing happens. Um, in fact, they're continuing to paint that picture because the, uh, Brody's secretary comes in and she's just immediately launching into the mundane shit that he's going to have to deal with. You know, the kids from the karate school who've been attacking the, uh, the picket fences. And, uh, I love that that actually comes back in about five minutes, uh, when you actually see some of those picket fences with the damage, um, but uh, he he's doing his best to listen to her, but also brush her off because he's got shit to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he's got a report. He's got a file about this girl and uh, the medical examiner calls. And I love the little bit of visual storytelling in that you don't hear the medical examiner on the phone, but you see Brody type cause of death shark attack on his paperwork. That's, uh, that's cool. (laughs) Um, and then yes, we cut to the, uh, the town elders, like I said, all coming out of their respective businesses and offices because they know, because the medical examiner is one of them and he's already spread the word about what's happened. They know what this guy's about to do. He's going right to the local hardware store to buy some stuff to make some signs that the beach is closed and they're all, there's like all these different, you know, shots of the town and there's a parade and all the other shit. And, uh, I, it's, it's very busy. It's very, very busy, but it goes back to like making it feel real. Yeah. When you go to those towns, that's what it's like. It's just constant life moving around you. Mm -hmm. There's no stagnation. There's no 
lack of oh, people yeah. in your background. And it's amazing that this is all pulled off so well uh, by such a young filmmaker. Um, yeah, it's it's funny. Spielberg has this reputation for um, kind of composing and putting together shots on the fly as he is filming instead of pre-planning everything like most directors do. And the fact that he is able to pull that off really speaks to his prowess. It's uh, it's something. Um, so he goes, he gets his supplies. The deputy comes back with the vehicle because uh, there's a report that there's some Boy Scouts on a swim for like a merit badge or something. And they're going to swap out so he can go down there and try to, you know, get to them because they don't have a phone or anything. I mean, obviously, this is 1975. If you had a cell phone, it would uh, probably come with a backpack and look like it came out of World War II. Um, so um, they swap out and clearly all these elders are trying to come together to talk to Brody, but they keep missing him or getting cut off or whatever. Uh, and then finally we get to the little car ferry. And I love this shot too. This one shot, once they pull on there and all pile out of the car to talk to him is so cool. It's the, the bulk of this is all in one take. It, it doesn't cut away from this shot until the conversation is essentially done. Yeah. Um, it's very cool. Very. And cool. So I just, I love it. It's like, you, it's like, here's, our introduction to Murray, the true villain of the film. I don't care what anybody says about the shark. <laughs> nah, the shark was just doing shark shit. You know, it's uh, it's the mayor that is indeed the villain. Uh, you know, this is you know where you start. If you rewatched this film in the past three years, this is where you start seeing all sorts of um, fun ties to our experience with the pandemic, and you know. It, you know, say what you want. Everybody has their own opinion, but there are certainly people that would have lived had things been a little bit more buttoned up with how we handled things. But, uh, yeah, yeah. We'll get to him <laughs> very soon. <laughs> but yeah, this again, we talked about our, uh, our favorite thing, late stage capitalism. <laughs> and, um, Ultimately, yeah, that's the, that might be even the larger villain of this film. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. I love how they they have the flip for the coroner. So it's like you yeah. originally had him there, and you're doing the whole shark attack bit, and he's gone along with it. And then once the, like the the community elders have gotten there and they've gotten into his ear, it's like yes, yes, no, boating it's been a boating accident. Yeah. Because it's just like you just see how those like veins of corruption flow into everything to make this town work. Yep. And I get it, too. With this type of a community, you are only making your money in these probably three very short months. Right. So I, I understand what they're where they're coming from, what they're trying to do. Um, you know, the, the, basically it's the entire community's livelihood on the line, uh, for these months, but also at what cost, yeah, at what cost you, you'd be able to come back one way or the other, but yes, um, we cut to, it's either later that day or the next day, everybody's at the beach and we get these underwater shots of flailing legs that are so anxiety inducing 
they drive me nuts throughout all of this film, <laughs> but uh, that's what they are intended to do. And they are done so well. If they're not going to show the shark, they're going to show its perspective. And you're thinking, okay, who's next? What's going to happen? Right. Um, and this is where, yes, we get the saga of Alex Kintner. Uh, we are introduced to him. His mother is one of those overbearing. Well, you can't be in the water too long because your, your hands are starting to prune one of those people. Um, yeah. And we're cutting in and out of Brody kind of keeping his eye on everything, getting a little freaked out when he sees, um, Harry, uh, coming out of the water, but it kind of looks like a shark approaching because of the stupid, uh, um, uh, swimming cap. Swimming uh, cap. Yeah. 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 Um, and you get, uh, you know, some of their friends, I guess, but you know, the guy is trying to use their friendship to get some shit done for his business or whatever. And it's just kind of obnoxious and he's clearly not paying attention to him because he's staring out at the water and all this interaction. Um, and then of course this guy who's been playing with his dog in the water, the dog clearly goes missing. Yeah. Let's just for me more upsetting than any of the people. Yeah. Uh, I forget what the dog's name is. It's like Tifton or something like that. It's uh, like, I, I, I 100% it's just like, it's like skip it or tip it. But you're right on Tip point it. with it. Tip it. Yeah, that's it. That's it. I I God, I always heard him pronounce it as Pippin. And uh I had the closed caption on when I was watching it this most recent time around just to, you know, catch dialogue a little bit better. And I'm like, nope, nope, it's Tip it. Okay. <laughs> I, I suppose that's a name Thank for a dog. Name. Yeah, I, I prefer people names for dogs, personally. I, I like a dog named Jeff or Steve. I just I love think a good fun. Jerry. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's more fun, personally. But, uh, yeah, the dog clearly goes missing, and thank God we don't see that, because we get that underwater sh approaching shot of Alex out there on his little uh, floaty thing, and holy hell, this is graphic. Like, so much more than you remember when you saw this for the first time as a kid. Exactly. So as I was going to say, when you... Like you, you told it earlier, you don't remember exactly the first time you saw it, but I was interested to know, do you remember if you saw the TV version or did you actually see like a VHS? I'm pretty sure it was VHS. We rented a ton of movies in the 80s. That was our regular thing. And I saw it probably so much that I shouldn't have seen at the age that I saw it. Um, you know, us horror fans, we often talk about our uh, fun with... Um, Oh God, what was the movie? It's uh fire in the sky, uh, which is not the most wonderful alien abduction movie, but boy, does that have some scenes. Um, yeah. One, <laughs> one specific scene that will make you never want to go to the woods again. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yes, uh, definitely saw this far too young and again, probably a good reason for my love of the genre but uh yeah the shark rolling with the boy and just fountains of blood in this water it's holy crap it's very visceral and i remember the first time i finally got to see the the unedited version of it and it was one of those like holy shit moments where it's just like i don't remember this being this graphic and a child, and then you get that a ridiculously cool shot 
where the, the does the reverse camera pan where it's pulling into Brody and pulling back. Oh, the dolly zoom. Time. Yeah, yeah. So good. Oh, and it's just like a great realization. Zoom. Like you get to get to feel that he's like witnessing this. Yeah. And it's just feeling his stomach fall in that moment. Absolutely. You are. Um, yeah. And everybody's racing out of the water and you get the, the bloody water lapping at the shore with the torn up floaty and the, the mom looking around for her kid. And, Oh, I like the tease here. They don't ever explicitly say it super earlier in the film, but you notice that Brody doesn't touch the water implicating that he has a fear of water. Yeah. And the, it was like, the even the waves, like when they crest, he's always like a step yeah. behind where the water would ever touch him. And I always yeah. think that that's cool. Cause you see all these people that are panicking for their loved ones, just going into the water to get them out. And here he is, is like the protector. And it's the first establishment of his fear of the water. But it's yeah. Like, I always love that little touch. He doesn't race into the water until it's his own kid that he's dealing with. Um, and that's later, but uh, yeah. And the again, um, Bad Hat Harry uh, he makes the comments about uh, uh, you know how they know about him, how he doesn't go in the water, how he's afraid of it, or whatever. It's it, it seems to be pretty well known, but yeah, you're right. The visual storytelling of it all is pretty cool too. Um, uh, yeah, just how quiet it is after everybody all gets out of the water too. And the mom's racing around looking for her kid. It's, up raft. Mm-hmm. I think they cut right from here to the town meeting. Um, I believe you are. Er, yeah. Cause they do the town meeting first. Yeah, they're uh, they're talking about uh, how the Kinder woman has uh, you know, put um, basically a want ad out there. She's uh, or you know thing in the papers about a reward, a three thousand dollar reward uh, for somebody to get the shark, um, and people are making inappropriate jokes, and it's you know everybody is just they they want to know two things, you know. How, you know, real is this thing? Can we get that money? And are you actually going to shut down the beaches? Um, Because, again, capitalism, yay! And uh, they, there's like the lady that screams because uh, the mayor says they're only going to shut them down for 24 hours. But you hear her scream in the background. 24 hours is like three weeks. Um. Well, and I would assume, yeah, that's not necessarily too far of a stretch for, you know, the amount of people that we see later arriving for the 4th of July weekend. So, yeah. Um, Zero remorse for the fact that a child just died. Yeah, exactly. Self-interest all the way. Yeah, yeah. Like the one guy uh, at the uh, the head table there saying, hey, is that 3000 in cash or is it a check? Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, so this is where we get our introduction via nails on the chalkboard. 
And one of the posters that I found uh, uh, for this episode uh, is somebody's reinterpretation of the nails on the chalkboard combined with uh, the the shark and all that. It's it's a cool poster. But uh, yeah, we get Robert Shaw as Quint, the the local sharker, one of my favorite Bond villains from uh, Russia with Love. Um, God. He's cool. <laughs> what a great character. I also love the fact that Bad Hat Harry is on the mm-hmm. committee. He makes the most yep. like happy face about the nails on the chalkboard sound that to this day still cracks me up every time I watch the movie. It's like he's getting a lot of enjoyment out of this sound that's driving everyone else crazy. Yeah. Most people, it's like, you know, a dog whistle to a dog. It's, you know, it, people do not like that sound. It's, uh, yeah, anytime that I, at work I hear somebody push like a washer or a dryer or a range across concrete. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's a very similar visceral reaction. <laughs> or you get like the uh, the knife and the fork on like the plate when you're just finishing up the end of your meal and you just get uh-huh. that scratchy sound. Yes, yeah. Shivers. Yep, but he does that to get everybody's attention so that he can say his piece. And he offers uh, to uh, kill the shark for $10,000. Tells people they better make up their mind quick, otherwise they're all going to be on welfare that winter. Um, I love how, you know, nobody wants to pony up this money to make this happen. And I understand you know, nearly 50 years ago, 10,000 would be a hell of a lot more money than it is today. But Jesus wept. Come on, just get this done. It's they, they all want to be cheap about it. I understand. But uh, just again, all the COVID similarities again. Yeah. <laughs> it's just it's it's uh, it's an interesting watch in this day and age, to say the least. Um, but it's yeah, so pertinent. yeah, we're. What almost fifty? No, what are we going on? Uh, yeah, we're almost fifty year anniversary at it in two more years, and it's mm-hmm. still the mentality that people have today. You know, COVID was the perfect example. It's so strange uh, in post COVID times now, looking back and being like, "Man, it's crazy how pertinent the lessons that we were taught from so long ago still have not been learned from." Yep. It's just like I guess we don't ever fully evolve. No, no, we really don't. Um, ooh, there's so much more uh, non-Jaws related uh, topics that I would like to get into about that specific topic, but I will save for something that's not a horror podcast. <laughs> mm. uh, but yeah, we, we uh, go back home to the Brodies and we've got uh, uh, Martin looking through this book about sharks. He, he's, you know, checked out everything he can from the local library and he's boning up. And there's this fun little bit where his wife kind of sneaks up on him. And he's so freaked out about what he's reading that he jumps like crazy and scares the shit out of her. It's kind of perfect. Again, love their dynamic, especially the whole want to get drunk and fool around. I yeah. love them. Oh, I love them. Th- these are some serious couple goals right here. Uh, you know, for people that have young kids that clearly look like they started uh, a family much later in life, but are, you know, still um, very, very uh, in love, uh, not just, you know, 
husband wife love, but also very much romantic love. That's cool. Yeah. And, and they sell it. They absolutely sell it. These two. They seem like best friends, you know, yeah. a good, healthy marriage where they're like a partnership. That's why I love the dynamic that comes through their conversation about the son, Michael's boat. And it's just like, Oh, he's just playing there. He can't hurt anybody. And all it mm. takes is one imagery in this book. And she's like, coming through you the your boat. father, get the fuck out of that boat. Uh, it's so perfect. Yeah. Uh, uh, I think we go from there to the dipshits with the roast. Uh, they figure they're going to catch this massive shark with basically a dog chain, a hook, and uh, about a, what would you say, maybe about 10-pound chuck roast, something like that. Yeah, that is a giant piece of meat. It is. It looks absolutely disgusting. Um but clearly the shark loves it because it's only a matter of minutes and he snags this thing and tears off the end of the dock along with one of the dipshits. Uh, I think it's Charlie. Um, I, I feel like, what was it, 98 or 99 Godzilla, the one with Matthew Broderick. There's a somewhat similar scene um, that was in like one of the teasers and I think was replicated in the movie, but like maybe cut down a little bit where a guy fishing at the end of a dock uh, is terrorized by the monster. It very much feels like homage to this. Um, but yeah, the, the shark takes uh, the end of the dock out into the water along with Charlie and he has to swim his ass back. And again, perfect, perfect tension and anxiety here because you, you know, don't see the shark. You only see the movement of the dock floating on the water and just the, the music just thundering along there and Charlie's swimming for his life. And he's like slipping on the boards, trying to get back up and well, he makes it, you know, lucky for him. But, uh, I always wanted to know what the length of that chain was because that piece of dock comes floating up to Charlie, like so close to the end. It's just like, you know, you're lucky. Because I don't know how much of it is like the shark just said, eh, let it go. And it was momentum took it forward. But, uh, the suspense of all of it and how it's like, you can't see anything. You just know it's there. And it's you so never dark. know how close it is. It's so effective in creating fear. It's a strange thing because I feel like there's a lot of people that don't even consider Jaws horror. They almost and, consider it like summer blockbuster. But I'm and like, I wanted to get into that with you as yeah. well because, yeah, there's a lot in the horror community that – you know, poo-poo thrillers as not actually being horror. Hey, at very least, they're horror adjacent, but this is brutal as parts of this film are, given its subject matter and everything that transpires. Oh, fuck yes, this is horror. Come on now. So, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, I'm glad that you brought this film as your film because more people need to... You know, sing the praises of Jaws as a horror film. So thank you. Exactly. I know it's got adventure and it's because it kind of crosses a lot of genres. It, it really does. But for me, it's always resonated as horror because it instills fear. Yeah, absolutely. Like, to me, that's the that's the basis of all horror movies. And there's there's different tiers of different things and there's different aspects to what creates that fear inside you, whether it's like visceral pain whether it's gore and like the visual of it, whether it's just suspense, horror, but it's like ultimately fear is the baseline there. 
that creates horror. And that's why this is my number one horror movie of all time. And I just can't get enough of it because I, yep. I like to put it on at the start of every summer, like we are here at the <laughs> Memorial Day weekend beginning, so that when I do eventually end up at the beach, I have to second guess whether I want to get in that dark as hell Atlantic Ocean water where I can't see anything <laughs> six inches down. Yep, that's kind of perfect. Absolutely perfect. This is absolutely a yearly watch for me as well. I can't get enough of it. Um you know, it's that lovely, happy accident of the uh, the digital copy of this being purchased through iTunes. And so when eventually they uh, upgraded the version that they had to a 4K, so was mine. Uh, yep. It's yeah, gorgeous in 4K. Yes, it's it the is. The movie's beautiful. Yes, it is. It's one of those films... Uh, and, and again, PSA, always redeem your digital stuff on the Apple store just because of that fact. Doesn't always work, but more often than not, it does. It does. Um, but uh, yeah, this just looks so beautiful still. And there's a lot of films that when you see them in 4K, uh, they lose some of their luster because some of the um, the the artistry of film and just making certain effects look better than they actually are tends to go away because of how crisp things are. Uh, case in point, Ghostbusters. Uh, the, the 84 Ghostbusters, there's a lot of matte paintings that uh, look a little too crisp, and you can actually see how fake some of them are because of it. Yeah. Um, which is unfortunate, but also still kind of cool because who doesn't love a good matte painting? Uh, I know I do. Uh, but yeah, man, um, the, the 4K of this one's great. Uh, let's see here. We cut to... It's probably the next day. Who knows? Uh, we've got the harbor and things are going nuts because everybody wants their piece of that $3,000 to catch the shark and enter Matt Hooper. And uh, we get, again, the multiple conversation thing happening. It's, uh, again, rewatches really help with this. But, uh, you know, all the people like overcrowding their boats and trying to take dynamite out on the water and everything else. It's nuts. And Ben Gardner. Love Ben Gardner. Yeah. Funny story about him is he was actually a local at the town and Spielberg fell in love with him so much. He put him in the movie with this role and just let him be himself. It's like, there's, there's a bunch of actors in this movie that are all there. It's like, they just, they just got pulled and plopped in. It's like, this movie is such a happy accident. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things that makes it so perfect. It's just all these random things fell into place and it just worked. And it's like yeah. this scene, like it's like you said, it requires like rewatches because the audio picks up all these different conversations and you can take your ear and you can listen to these little conversations because they're all pertinent. Every mm -hmm. single one has something that goes into the movie and then it comes back in some other scene and you didn't even think about it until you watch the movie five times, six times, 10 times, 15, <laughs> 30. Yep. Um yeah, it, it, again, perfect happy accident. There's no better way to to uh, describe this film. It, it, yeah, and um, yeah, uh, again, rewatches 
are absolutely rewarded with this thing. Um, there's plenty of films where the luster definitely comes off with rewatches because maybe there's just so much of a twist that they're trying to pull at the end and things are ruined by having seen it before or whatever. But uh, yeah, this is a perfect example of a kind of perfect rewatch. Um, Hooper and Brody finally sync up there in the Harbor master's office. Um, they are, so happy to have finally connected because it's chaos and, uh, well, Brody needs the help for sure. Um, and then we cut to just a little bit late. Oh, no. Uh, we cut to the metal ex- medical examiner's office because uh, Hooper wants to see the corpse. And he, yeah, yeah, he is absolutely shook by uh, what little bit he is able to uh, examine. Um He's like, absolutely, this is a shark attack. And just his glares at the medical examiner, who's like, this is no boating accident. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I I love how he needs that little glass of water just because it's just so shocking. It's like dried everything out in his mouth. And he needs it just to be able to speak for his uh, recording that he's making as he's examining the body. Um, it's uh, just those little touches, and that actually comes back a little bit later. We'll get, we'll get to that. Um, but, uh, yeah, they, we go back to the harbor where the Yahoos have found a shark. Uh, it's a tiger shark. It's reasonably big. They all think it's really impressive and that this has to be the one. Um, so they're all gathering around for their photos and whatnot. Hooper is measuring the mouth because he understands from examining the body. There is no way that this was the shark. It has a much smaller, uh, bite radius than, um, what mauled Chrissy. Um, but nobody wants to hear this. Even Brody to a certain degree, because he gets sucked in by, uh, the mayor, and they're all happy that they've caught this thing. They think they've done it. It's the relief. You know, oh, the, the, yeah. the terror is gone. We've solved the problem. There's no potential for a, a two sharks to be in our waters. It could never happen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think Hooper makes the comment that uh, the, the possibility of this shark being your shark is 100 to 1. Um, and we really, to be absolutely certain, we've got to cut this thing open and see what it's been chewing on. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I think, uh, this is one of the few smart decisions made by Brody and the mayor, uh, in that they don't want to do it right there on the dock with, you know, in front of God and everybody, because if they cut that thing open and we'll, Kinder boy comes sliding out. Yeah, that's uh, not going to be great. And uh, no sooner than they have this conversation, but uh, Mrs. Kintner uh, shows up uh, all in black and introduces herself to Brody with a slap. She goes for that slap. Oh, yeah, she does. That's that is 100 percent genuine. She did not hold back because you can feel it. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. And Brody is now a broken man. <laughs> you know, she makes the comment about how, you know, you knew there was the shark out there and you didn't close the beaches and you knew and you did nothing. And the mayor is like, she's wrong. And, uh, you know, cause yay capitalism. Right. Uh, and Brody's like, no, she's not. 
and he goes home to drink himself to death. Um, Done that a few days of my life. Yeah, he is a broken, broken man. And they, you know, they got the cute little scene of his uh, younger son sitting there with him, you know, mimicking him and all of his movements and stuff. It's kind of adorable. Um, Another captured moment that wasn't intentionally written. Just happened naturally with the casting and they just yep. recreated it. It was like, I thought that was so cool. And it makes it feel like family. Yeah. Oh, God, yeah. Like they it's feel like a perfect. real family. Because yep. that's the kind of stuff like your kids just naturally do. You know, it makes you, yeah. well, I don't have kids. But yeah, I neither know, do I, but I, I am aware of children kids. and their behavior, yes. Um, yeah, yeah, it's it's so perfect. And there's just clear love there. And, you know, he asks his son for a kiss. And, and he's like, because I need it. Yeah. It's just so sad. And then Hooper shows up. Uh, he's got some wine with him, uh, and you know he wants to talk because he's about to head out, and he just wants the sheriff prepared for what he's going to have to deal with. Um, you know they they talk. Well, mostly he talks uh, with uh, 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 Mrs. Brody. I can't think of her first name. It's, Ellen. Um, Ellen. Thank you. Um, and they have their back and forth while. Basically, Brody just drinks and stares. Um, Everyone gets and, a pour, and then he pulls a pint glass full of wine. Yeah. You want to let that breathe? Okay, no. All right. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, uh, they eventually come to the conclusion that they need to go ahead and uh, just open up the shark and see for themselves. And I love the little exchange uh, you know, with Ellen. She's like, can you do that? He's like, I can do whatever I want. I'm the chief of police. It's good. So they go down there. They open the thing up. It's disgusting. They throw a few fish out and uh, a license plate. A license plate from Louisiana. Yep, it's come up from Southern Waters. Um, it's that's a good little uh, bit right there. Um, but clearly, this is not their shark. So. It's like, all right, well, we're going to go out on a boat tonight and we're going to go find it. It's this insane. scene terrifies me Yeah, when they go out there because it's like it's so eerie with the fog and everything. Mm-hmm. And it's like one of the things I like, everyone is super, super familiar with the, the base theme of Jaws that Williams does. Dun, 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 dun. The little like subtle music that he puts throughout the entire movie is mm-hmm. so underrated and it creates that suspense that I love so much in this film. I was like, it's just, uh, I digress. It, no, but I, I know exactly what you're talking about. And it's uh, very similar stuff that he uses in similar types of scenes in Raiders of the Lost Ark, too. Exactly. Um, it's uh, another yeah, staple just, of my childhood. Yeah, you know it. <laughs> we are simpatico, my friend. Uh, yes, uh, it's. it's Perfect. And Brody just continues to drink and be drunk because that's I love the that he's got the way they're on. Yep. That's the only way they're getting him on that boat. Um, but they run into Ben Gardner's boat adrift. And I do love the one line because there's it's got that levity joke where he's just like, so you're afraid of the water. And he's like, why you live on an island? He's like, well, it's only an island if you look at it from the water. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, because, uh, yeah, he's like, that makes a lot of sense, yeah. he says. Um, 
Eh, well, it's all a matter of perspective. Come on now. Um, but yeah, they, they have the discussion of, um, you know, how Hooper is just fantastically rich. And that's how, you know, a lot of the stuff, including the boat, basically self-funded. Um, it's like they they have somebody like you watching sharks or they pay somebody like you, he says. And uh, yeah, that's where he throws that line about uh, being afraid of the water back at him. How old do you think Hooper's supposed to be? I figured he's what, late 20s? Yeah. Yeah, that sounds about right. Late 20s, early 30s. Kind of like a yuppie kid that kind of got it all handed to him, went to college, became a marine biologist. Yeah. I mean, he he clearly knows how to handle himself. Uh, You know, he he, uh, is an avid boater for sure. but uh, and we we get that quite a bit more in the second half of the film, of yeah. course. But uh, but um, yeah, he's he's definitely got a chip on his shoulder about you know like working class people, you know, not um, respecting him. But um, he's clearly done a lot to make sure that he is somebody that they should, in some ways, respect. And he yeah. established himself through intelligence and hard work, even though he mm-hmm. came from a different path, which comes to a great dichotomy we'll get to later. Oh, yeah. Um, but, yeah, uh, he, he decides to you know, throw on his wetsuit and go check out the um, the uh, adrift SS Gardner. I, I don't know the name of the boat uh, where that is not established. But uh, as he's underwater... And I, I love that they have the uh, the underwater lights from uh, his own vessel there. That's very cool. Uh, a, a neat way to light the scene. Um, but uh, he finds this uh, hole in the hull of the uh, the boat and a very, very large tooth wedged in there, uh, which he manages to pry loose with his knife. But just as... Probably Ben Gardner's head uh, comes floating through the hole, which of course startles him and he drops the tooth. Um, Yeah. And then hurriedly swims back to uh, his own boat. You know, you get the little uh, burst of music and the tension, you know, thinking that he may be next, but uh, you know, far less so than the, uh, the people with the dock and the check chuck roast. Um, Yeah. It's um, very clear what they're dealing with now, at least to him. Uh, they confront the mayor the next day. Things do not go well. It's like, so you have this tooth, right? Oh, you don't. Okay, well, then this isn't even a consideration then. That type of conversation. It always reminds me. I was like, did you wear Buster Browns in the 80s? No. <laughs> I did not, but uh, yes, at least I am old enough to uh, understand the reference. Um, I actually had a pair of Buster Browns. It's fine. Ah, yes, because the mayor is far more concerned about this billboard that's been vandalized. Love it. Uh, You have this uh, girl in a swimsuit on a surfboard uh, that's advertising Amity. I, I don't know why they need to advertise the island that they are on, but uh, eh, it, it's more of a welcome sign, I guess, from the local chamber of commerce or whatever. But uh, somebody has uh, painted help shark and a little word balloon uh, made her eyes look far more terrified and uh, added a shark fin to the image. Um, 
Yeah. Because that's the major problem. Yes. Vandalism. Yes. Picket fences and signs. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, the, the Hoover is going through a roller coaster of emotion and um, just how he speaks with the mayor in this scene. Um, I also love that it's mostly like one take. Um, it's, it's good, but there's just, there's no convincing this dude. Um, basically what they're going to have to do is just shark spotters, people in boats, anybody that they can get with a gun who can help and, because that's all they're going to be allowed to do. Uh, they're not going to be able to shut down the, yeah, there's just not going to be able to shut down the beaches. So, and apparently not going to be able to pay anybody to really seriously go after the shark. So they're going to do this bullshit in the meantime, they're and we get the 4th of July montage of everybody coming yeah. to, the, to see what the big, the big deal for these islanders is as far as the population and where the money is rolling in. Yeah, it's a shit ton of tourists. It's uh, you know, great um great John Williams track throughout this as well. Um and this montage is uh kind of intercut with uh Brody and Hooper trying to recruit help uh on the phone. Um yeah. We get, uh, before too long here, uh, Peter Benchley's cameo as a news reporter um, reporting live from the beach and talking about the recent uh, attacks. Uh, And there are helicopters and boats patrolling everywhere on this beach. It just does not feel like it would be the um, experience you'd want going there. And everybody's kind of terrified to go in the water and the mayor make sure to point this out to somebody. It's like get in the fucking water, dude. Nobody's, Nobody's going swimming. swimming. Yeah. It's like, why don't you take your suit off and get in the water yourself, Mary? Yeah. Be the yeah. example you want to be. Yes. Ugly, ugly suit. Always reminds me of like fruit striped gum. Yeah. Yeah. It's this one. And the one with all the little anchors, he is a walking advertisement for J crew. <laughs> um, yep. Uh, let's see here. So he gets that family to go out in the water and wow, they are terrified walking hand in hand with what I'm assuming are their grandkids. But given that we've already established that we are not great judges of age in older movies, they are probably the parents of these kids. Uh, they just waited till later. Who knows? They, they waited till later in life. Maybe they adopted. I don't know. But yeah, they've got three very young children with them and they look like they're in their late 60s, early 70s. Um, But they head out into the water and then everybody else sees them. So they decide to as well. And we're back to business as usual on the beach. And this is where uh, Brody stops his uh, son and his friends from taking uh, his little birthday present boat out on the main water. Now we want you to go into the pond. This uh, They call it the pond. It's this little estuary that's uh, nearby. Um, I, I don't know why they thought that would be any safer, but... Um, it is what it is. Um, and we get, you know, all this conversation back and forth between uh, the shark spotters and the choppers and on the boats, super, you know, they all got code names and shit. It's kind of fun. Um, who doesn't like a good code name? Um, 
But uh, it's like, oh, think we see a shadow. Oh, no, it's nothing. And then we get a little get background we, tease. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, that one's fun. Uh, and then we get what we think is the shark, but no, it's just a couple of kids with a cardboard fin. I love the, he made me do it. That's such a brother comment, too. Oh, yeah. Like, no, yeah. Uh, uh, he made me do it. I, I didn't do anything under my own my own choices. Right. And you know, the follow-up line is, well, if he had told you to jump off a bridge, would you do it? Yeah. Um, yep. Yep. I'll been there. Um, but uh, a kid and everything. We're coming right back to modern times, Joe. Yes. So (laughs) when, um, when they cause all this panic, you see the absolute worst in people as everybody's stampedes back to the beach and you've got grown men crashing through kids and just throwing them aside, stealing their floaties to, you know, be able to swim in easier themselves. Um, it's, um, it's kind of bad. You only see a handful of people helping anybody who, you know, falls or, you know, trips or whatever. It's, um, it's pretty sad. Those are the worst in humanity. Self-preservation. Yep. Yep. Comes first and foremost. Yes, it does. And uh, it no sooner than they realize that it's just a couple of kids, uh, this uh, lady who's uh, doing some painting out uh, at the uh, the mouth of the pond there uh, sees the massive shark swimming in. This is like one of the very first good views of the size of this thing. Yeah. And you still barely see anything but you are given a much better hint of uh, how big this shark is. Um, and yeah, you've got the kids on their little sailboat fucking around with a knot and this probably kind of drunk dude in a rowboat. Really small uh, rowboat. Like yeah. The smallest rowboat I've ever seen. Not so much small in its overall size and just that it feels extra short. Yes. Like it's, it's wide, but it's like it feels like it's four feet long. It's like a fifty-four inch bathtub. You know, it's 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 unusual. They're usually sixty inches. It's but I digress. Um, and he seems like a little out of it. Maybe he's kind of drunk. I don't know. But uh, he's just checking in with them, seeing how they're doing. And you see the fin coming up behind him. So good. He gets knocked over, and uh, the kind of wave from this happening knocks over the kids on their little sailboat and we get one of our first shots of the uh forward half of this shark it's the most terrifying shot for me in the entire movie that yeah underwater overhead of the gaping jaws and i was just mm-hmm. like to, even to this day when i watch it i'm like it looks real i don't know how they shot it or what they used mechanics wise, but I'm like, it's the most terrifying thing that made me stop swimming. Cause I was like, <laughs> that's huge. Yeah. It's oh. big. And, um, we get the shot of the dude's, uh, severed leg drifting to the bottom of the, uh, the water there. And it, it's a shot that gets not the same shot, but similar shots reused in some of the sequels. I can't remember which sequel it is, but I feel like it happens multiple times seeing limbs drifting down. Maybe it's the third one. I can't remember for sure. Um, 
I think the third really, one's full of them because of all the three D. Yeah, yeah, maybe that's it. Uh, you know, I really don't want to have to do a rewatch to figure out which one it is because most of the sequels are pretty terrible. The second one's decent, and yeah, they have guilty pleasures to them. Uh, yeah, you know, I, I always, as a kid, liked the fourth one. Yeah. Uh, but now I realize that that basically just paid for a boat for Michael Caine, and that's about it. Um, and he's taking it incredibly serious in that movie, which is the strangest thing ever. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. It's, um, the movie's a weird one. Um, but yeah. Like, I'm practically connected to the Nick. <laughs> Oh, it's so weird. Um, but yes, uh, the shark takes out this dude and we get one of my favorite shots of this film of the camera just whipping by an absolutely stunned Michael um, is such a good looking shot. I don't know what it is about it that does it for me, but it's so cool. Um and this is where we've got everybody running over from the beach to try to help. I don't know how they're going to help, but, uh, you know, Brody just leaping over guardrails and he races in the water to help pull his son out. And this is, you know, like we talked about the first time we ever see him get in the water and he's running in with shoes and everything and dragging him up. And they realize he's in shock and, you know, they grab some beach towels from nearby to, you know, help cover him up and everything. And hey, hey unfortunately, Sean, the younger brother, is Left totally alone. forgotten about in uh, portions of this film. You know, you get uh, like maybe five to ten minutes earlier, um, Ellen waving from... Uh, you know, kind of the boardwalk there at her husband and mouthing, I've got Sean at him. And no, she doesn't because he's racing along after Michael. She has no idea where her kids was. Uh, you know, Michael and Sean are the quintessential Gen Xers and that, um, you know, our parents just let us do our own shit. And uh, the only time they were ever concerned that we weren't there is when we weren't home on time. Yeah, it's uh, the 70s and 80s. Just be home for dinner. Yeah. Pretty no much. Phones, you know, maybe you were at a friend's house or like a grandparent's house and they would check in and be like, yeah, 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 they're still alive. But otherwise, it was just like, be home by seven. Yep, pretty much. Yep. Like we, uh, we, we grew up in the uh, the Lord of the Flies era of youth. <laughs> yeah, very much. The fact that any of us survived just, uh, yeah, <laughs> says something. <laughs> but... Um, yeah, yeah, this poor kid is just bawling his eyes out. He's, like, mashed into the sand. Uh, I don't know if people trampled him or what, but, uh, um, yeah, Michael's okay. Uh, and later at the hospital, um, you know, they're... The kids, Michael's got to just, I think just because they want to be absolutely certain he's okay, he's got to spend the night there. It's just shock, really. But, uh, you know, they got him on an IV and he's just supposed to rest there. Um, and they, uh, Brody hands over, uh, Sean to the missus because he catches, uh, the mayor out of the corner of his eye. And Brody's balls makes, finally drop. Yep. Uh, because, you know, she makes that comment to him, uh, after he says, you want to take him home? Uh, I got some things I got to finish up. And she's like, New York home. And he's like, nah, home, home. And she's like, okay, we're in this, we're in this for the long haul. We are going to make this happen. Yeah. 
And uh, yep, he mans up in the biggest fucking way because he just grabs this dude, drags him in behind a curtain. He's like, you're going to fucking sign this document. We are hiring Quint and we are making this happen. And oh, good. the best way to know that the movie is dated is there's somebody smoking in a hospital. So yeah. <laughs> you know it. Just all the smoking in general. The fact that there's an ashtray on uh, Ellen's bedside table. Yes. <laughs> it's just like everybody smoked back then. It's like, yep. I think Mary has a cigarette every time you see him on the beach. It's just, it's always like the end of a yeah. blunt. Yeah. Brody generally has a cigarette yep. uh, every time you see him too. Uh-huh. Um but yeah, um, God. So yes, uh, Murray finally signs off on hiring Quint and he makes some kind of half hearted comment about how his kids were on that beach as well. And yeah, but your kids weren't, you know, a couple of feet away from this massive shark. Um, so fuck off Murray. Um, and yeah, um, we cut to the harbor the next day where, you know, they're basically talking with Quinn over, you know, what it's going to take, what he's going to need. Uh, Hooper includes himself on this mission. Quint doesn't like that so much. Uh, he wants to do everything he can to basically say that uh, Hooper's a useless city boy, you know, fancy college kid who knows nothing, has soft hands and is going to be just a detriment out there on the water. Um, Seems like most captains have this mentality that it's like my vessel, my way. Mm -hmm. And I don't think Cooper has a problem with that in any way. It's just, you know, he's certain that he's going to be needed to be able to catch a beast. That's this large. Um, And yeah, um, we get uh we get uh their back and forth there. Um a little moonshine. Yep, yep, uh which is probably gonna make them all blind. Um and um <laughs> I mean I don't think it's actually wood alcohol, but I, I don't know that I I barely trust my own home brewing. Um but um uh, that said, uh we we keep getting back and forth between Quentin Hooper and eventually we get uh, Lorraine coming to, or that's the actress's name, Ellen coming to see her husband off. And of course he's got full rain gear on because he, again, he doesn't like going out on the water. He's terrified of being on a boat. Um, and this is also unfortunately the last we see of Mrs. Brody. Yeah. And there's like 50 minutes left in this film at this point, too. It's we the uh, more it's the than halfway half and half movie. Like, yeah, there's a couple of them that do that. Like uh, I always say, like Predator is like that, too. Yeah. Like, Predator starts as like an action film. And then all of a sudden you hit this point and it becomes like a suspense horror film for the rest of the way. And there's I, I always love that aspect of this movie. It's like two movies mashed together with all the same characters. Yep. Yeah, from basically from this point where they head out on out, it's just the three of them and the sharks. So, um, and apparently much closer to the book at this point. Um, and then we get that awesome shot too of them heading out of the harbor, but it's through the shark teeth that the jaws that are hanging on the window inside, uh, Quint's building there. Um, 
Yeah, this cinematographer, I can't remember the dude's name, but he was the one that did uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and a ton of other cool movies. Uh, and he does just a banger job on this one. It's absurd. There's so many iconic shots that I just love that it's like I always found, I found a couple I actually found this shot um, and somebody painted it and it's oh, just like it's a nice. really really cool like mock poster that they made mm-hmm. and I absolutely I, it's just I love that shot yeah because it's um, kind of what they're heading into yeah yeah very much so um, we've got later on that day um Cooper's messing with some of his gear. Quint's got a line in the water and he's just sitting there in his chair on the back of the, of the boat. And, uh, Brody is, uh, working a chum line. Um, just throwing a bunch of nasty, nasty chum out into the water. I don't know how much of that stuff they brought with them, but it sure feels like a lot. Um, and this is where we get the super fun, uh, thing of, went just down in a beer crushing the can in his hand and Hooper with his little plastic cup of water crushing it in kind. It's so fucking funny. <laughs> I, I love the, the, the three men and like the characters mm-hmm. that they portray here. It's just like, this is what makes the movie so amazing to me is that you have these three guys playing these three characters and they're, they intermingle like oil and water for the most part, but they just make it work. And this movie starts to feel a little bit, almost like a stage play where you've got all these men that are just at the top of their craft at this moment in time, just doing great work. Because Even though their location is variable because they're on a boat on the water, this is essentially a film that is in one location for the rest of the film because the stage is movable. Um, but, uh, yeah, uh, Quint, uh, has Brody grab another chum marker. Unfortunately, he, uh, grabs the wrong line and lets loose, um, the, um, tanks of air that, uh, uh, Hooper brought with him for, uh, diving and Hooper just goes off on him because, you know, it's compressed air. It could explode if something happens. Uh, you know, planting that seed for later. um, but uh, I also love in this bit, uh, Quint, just giving this little bit of a kindness to Brody. It's like, you know, Chief, next time you just ask me which line to pull. And he says it like in the nicest, like this is one of the kindest things that this person ever says in this movie. But it's pretty cool. Um, it's it's almost like there's just this modicum of respect Love it. Love it. It almost yeah. feels to me like like there's a, a little pull between um, Quint and Hooper, like almost vying for who Brody is going to be with. Because right. it's like, and it's kind of like, a, it's, it's almost like a cute relationship aspect where it's just like, well, no, I want you to be a little bit on my side or I want you to be on my side. It mm-hmm. goes a little bit back and forth as they do the things. Yeah. I always really yeah. like that aspect. Yeah, it's who's actually going to be in control. Yeah, as much as uh, Quint is the captain. Yep. Um, So, yes, uh, this is, I think, where we move to the line starting to pay out a little bit. And just the tension that builds as Quint just ever so slowly grabs the rod, pops it into the bracket 
slowly gets his harness on, attaches that to the to the reel. Meanwhile, uh, you've got um, Brody working on uh, tying the knot because you know they're trying to teach him shit as they're out there. Um, spins into the hole. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he is horrible at it, and. He gives it another whirl as all of this stuff is happening. And just as he finally uh, gets it and yells out, I've got it. That's where the line just takes off. It's just perfect, perfectly put together. And uh, yeah, they're kind of off to the races here. Um, eventually, uh, the line does snap. After all this back and forth between Hooper and Quint, as far as is it the shark? Is it something else? And Quint's like, okay, this is piano wire, essentially. You think yeah. that like a stingray or a tuna or something or that? Exactly. Nope. Don't you tell me my business. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, uh, Brody gets back to uh, chumming again. And this is where we get that awesome shot and the most iconic line of the film because his back is turned as the shark pops out of the water and nearly grazes him. And he springs up with that cigarette in his mouth and just backs slowly into the cabin. And we're going to need a bigger boat. Or you're gonna improvised need a, line. Yeah. So perfect. You're going to need a bigger boat. And then Quinn. Uh, turns and looks out and then he sees it and they it's like the, the realization of what they're all yes. dealing with just washes over each one of them and it's so good. oh yeah because they all finally and we as the audience finally get that real sense of scale of this shark and hooper's like it's a 20 footer and quint's like 25 and oh it is huge it's uh yeah it's funny um Quint refers to great whites as porkers mm-hmm. and that's for good reason because they, they, they're thick boys. Uh, they, they are a very, very big beefy shark. Uh, and this one is, uh, no less so. Um, so yeah, they finally get moving and grooving. Um, they've got, uh, yeah, Quint's got his rifle there with the, um, that fires off, uh, like a small harpoon or piton or whatever. Uh, And he's got a barrel system to basically attach to a large shark and uh, keep it from submerging too far. Um, And uh, he wants, uh, as he stands in the pulp, the bow pulpit uh, to fire this, uh, he wants um, Hooper to attach the line to the first barrel and everything. But Hooper's like, wait, no, I, I want to, you know, put some type of a strobe light or something on here so that we can more easily track this thing as we go into the evening. Um, and you get all this back and forth and people, you know, racing around the ship and getting in everybody else's way and, um, all comes together. And, you know, the score is almost whimsical in these scenes. It's kind of funny in that it, in some ways does not feel like it should suit what's happening, but, but it does. I I think, you know, you're supposed to be having fun with this adventure at this point, as terrifying as it is. Um, 
And I think so, it's yeah. supposed to like be emblematic of the fact that like these three men are on like a fishing trip together <laughs> and they've hit this excitement point where they're like, yes, we're doing this. Like we're, we're being mm-hmm. successful. We've tracked it down. We're going to barrel it. We're going to catch it because the music shifts at the end yeah. of the scene and goes way more dire. Yep. Uh, so they do get that barrel on the thing and I guess it's time to break for dinner because, you know, the shark kind of goes away and this is once again, one of the more iconic bits of this film because, uh, we, they've had a few drinks getting into that apricot brandy. Right. Um, and, uh, they, uh, start comparing, uh, personal or all permanent injuries and you, you get this back and forth between Hooper and Quint of, uh, you know, this shark did this, that shark did that. Um, and blink and you'll miss it. But as they're going back and forth, Brody lifts up his shirt just a little bit and you see an old bullet wound and he, you know, just puts his shirt back down and makes no comment. It It's a matter of seconds you but uh, I always thought it was an appendix scar. Yeah, I, I was thinking it was supposed to be like I, I've got something I could talk about here, but but you just leaves it inside. Yeah, I've never gotten an answer to that. I just always assumed it was like the only scar he had on his body was an appendix scar, and he was too embarrassed to bring it up while these men were talking about like battle wounds. Yeah. I, I could absolutely, I could absolutely see it going that way as well. But yeah. I think uh, I, 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 I like my head cannon. Um, <laughs> ultimately, I think you know, as much as they're trying to portray themselves as being ultimate badasses, he's the one that knows that he's seen some real shit as yeah. well. Um, and I, I will be remiss if I do not bring up the uh, the, the tribute to this in Chasing Amy, uh, where there is it. Yeah, yeah, or uh, people will, uh, yeah, uh, Mark Freeman will uh, never forgive me if I don't bring this up, uh, just being the massive Kevin Smith fan that he is. But ultimately, yeah, where they're comparing permanent injuries from sex. Um, no, not and, the sex, oral sex. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And uh, I love how uh, ultimately they are so perfectly paired with the injuries from Jaws, you know, because Quint talks about how he only has a certain range of motion because of an arm wrestling contest that he was in. Yeah, I can't move my neck. I can only move it so far this way. Yeah. Um, But we move on from them uh, having a good time. uh, Before you go further, you can also say in clerks. There's the salsa shark bit. There so is. Kevin Smith has quite a few, quite a few homages. Ball rats as well, because uh, uh, what's his face? Uh, Quint T.S. Quint, uh, named after Quentin, this film is going to propose to his girlfriend uh, at the Universal tour where Jaws pops out of the water. Exactly. Yeah. Well, now I got to see if I can find more references through the Kevin Smith because <laughs> there's probably a ton I don't even remember now. There likely are, yes. Um, but then Brody sees one last scar on Quint that he hasn't brought up. And uh, ultimately, he asks about that thing on his arm. And Quint's like, oh, it's not a scar. It's a tattoo I had removed. 
and uh, Hooper wants to make light of it. You know, it's like, oh, let me guess, um, mother. Yeah, uh, but no. And Quint does this thing where he reaches out and he grabs Hooper on his arm and just holds him still and very, very tight. And he's like, no, that was the USS Indianapolis. And Brody has no idea what this means, but, um, you know, ultimately, um, Hooper being somebody who has studied sharks his entire life. Oh, he knows. Yeah. He knows. And, and the funny thing is this would have only been like 30 years prior. Yeah. Cause it which is kind of crazy to think. Oh, I know. Right. Here's a movie that's nearly 50 years gone, but at the time it was released, it was only 30 years after world war two ended. And it's, it's a strange concept. I always think about this now because it's like we, we're both 80s kids. And, you know, some of like our classic movies are these 70s movies, 75, 76, 78. And it's like when I was a kid, that felt like an eternity from before oh, yeah. me. And then I'm just like, no, I was actually I was there when these films were made. I just watched them a little bit later. And mm-hmm. then to think, oh, shit, I'm old. Oh yeah. Where it's just yeah. Like, where it's like Jurassic Park. It was like, oh, here's a classic Spielberg movie that was just made when I was alive, and you know, it's there. It's just in my 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 nomenclature. But Jaws, I always aged it out like like it was 20 years older than it really was, but it's just right there. Yeah, I just have to remind myself that Jurassic Park was the summer uh, before I started high school. Yeah. It's you know, it's fuck, man. It, the whole advancing age thing is always a kick in the ass, isn't it? <laughs> hey, man, we get some sweet-ass movies. Yeah, we do. Um, it's just unfortunate that they are always a reminder of that, but yeah. eh, it, it is what it is. Um, so, yes, uh, he mentions, nope, that was a tattoo I had removed uh, because I served on the USS Indianapolis, and Brody's like, what's that? And... Quint goes through his story about how that was the ship that delivered, um, you know, fat man and little boy to, um, or at least fat man, uh, to, um, the staging area for, you know, the bombing of Hiroshima and, and, you know, how on its way back home, uh, it got torpedoed by a Japanese submarine and everybody went into the water and, for the time that they were in the water, the sharks were eating good. And it was absolutely, I can't remember the numbers, but it was, you know, thousands of people that essentially went into the water, but only hundreds made it out. And just his, you know, thing about how, you know, he saw one of his friends floating there. And when he reached out, he realized it was only his upper half. And then. Mm. And the moment where he was truly terrified was when they were being picked up and you were wondering if you were going to make it through that final stretch just to get on board and get out of there. Now I know I'm going to be biased because I've already labeled this as my favorite horror movie and my favorite movie, but I truly believe that this is maybe one of the greatest monologues that's ever been out in film. God. Yeah. Like, it's so captivating to listen to him. Like, every every time I watch it, I'm, like, waiting for this moment because it's just, like, I'm so enamored by this man's story. I just, mm-hmm. nobody talks. 
Like you can have chatters through movies. As soon as this scene starts, everyone goes silent, just listens to this. No matter how many times they've heard it. I just think that's so powerful. It is. Absolutely. You know, take that, Mike Flanagan. Um, but I, I'm sure it's quite the inspiration to him. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it's just shockingly good. It just there's just for somebody who's kind of a in some ways a comedic character because of what a hard ass he is and just his little, you know, um, just the little things that he spouts off on throughout the film, you know, to ultimately get this super quiet moment. Vulnerable. Yeah. Yeah. Super vulnerable. In the, in the, in the seventies where it was just like, you know, men are men was like a huge mentality aspect of those times. Like men don't show vulnerability. And it's just like this man, like truly exposed himself to these other men. It's you start to feel, this great camaraderie between the three of them at this point. And that's where you start mm-hmm. to become really invested in the point where you're like, I want these three men to succeed. I want these three men to live through this. And it almost raises the stakes a bit because you finally like, instead of just seeing Quint as this cool, badass character, you see him as a human for the first time. Mm-hmm. In my opinion. No, oh, no, absolutely. That is, um, that is kind of the perfect perspective of this scene. And uh, he finishes his story and everybody's just dead silent. And then you start hearing uh whale singing. And that inspires Quint to, you know, bring back uh farewell and adieu to fair Spanish ladies, um, which is something he teased Hooper with earlier when they were talking about the shark cage, because as far as Quint was concerned, you go in that water with that shark, we're never going to see you again. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and then Hooper picks up from that with, uh, show me the way to go home. And uh, then uh, Quint joins in with him and Brody finally sits down with them and they're just having a great time because they're all, you know, fairly buzzed at this point. And uh, they've had this, you know, pretty intense bonding experience at this point. And then we get the shot from outside the boat of the barrel approaching with the flashing light and through their singing, they don't understand that the boat is now getting rammed by the shark and water is is starting to pour in. It's, oof. That's, yeah. Uh, Thinking ship to me is one of the most terrifying things. That's one of the reasons I love submarine films because it is so claustrophobic. Yep. And just terrifying. Um, Yeah. For Red October, you know, basically the capstone of the great John McTiernan trilogy of Predator Die Hard, Hunt for Red October, um, is just terrifying in bits because you've got nowhere to go. If water comes in, you are going to die. Um, and if James Cameron is filming it and you're in abyss, you might actually die because he'll risk your life to get his shots. Yes. Yes. Oof. That's a film that I wish had an easy way to watch. Um, apparently, it doesn't stream very often. Um, 
supposedly this year 4K. I have heard take my money. Yeah, I've heard Cameron is like that's they were starting it with Titanic. I heard Abyss is getting a 4K treatment. I was like, I will own that. Yep. That's that such an amazing underwatched film. Yeah. Uh for sure. I love it. Um but yes, the shark is ramming the boat and water's coming in and things are not good. Um they end up uh like shorting out the battery that's uh powering the lights and all that uh with the water that's pouring into the into the bilge and um they all go on deck and um okay, well, Quint. Yeah. bold action yep super yep. telling me it doesn't matter yeah, yeah, it's, it's certainly not going to have the stopping power, uh, you know, a few feet underwater there, um, especially not this big, massive shark either. But, uh, yeah, shark kind of leaves for the evening, and uh, they're forced to uh, kind of endure in darkness uh, until the sun comes up there. Um, and and there they the are. Shooting stars. I always loved that they yeah. shooting stars in the film. And I was like, yeah, are they real? But it's like because of the way that it's filmed, they look kind of fake, but they actually right. captured real shooting stars. Yeah, that's the cool thing. When you're so far out on the water, you're going to see stuff like that because of, uh, you know, um, th- there's such a lack of uh, man-made light. light pollution. Uh, yeah, yeah. Light pollution is not a thing out there. Um, yeah, it's so rare that you get to see night skies like that anymore, and um, it's super cool. Um, so the next day, they're working on the repairs, and um, the shark returns. They're able to connect another barrel. What looks like a third. I think there's some continuity errors through this, because I, I feel like they get a second and a third barrel on there, but it goes back to there only being two barrels. I don't know. There, there's something that's not quite right, uh, or at least I'm having trouble following it in this point. Um, but yeah, um, there, there's moments where um, the the one barrel nearly takes uh, uh, Brody's head off, and they're like trying to attach these lines to the stern of the boat. They got cleats ripping out. Uh, Hooper almost gets uh, ripped in half by one of the lines because Brody's an idiot and he brings it around behind him. Um, yeah. And the shark starts towing them, essentially. Yes. Uh, and the engine's struggling to keep up. Um, and ultimately, uh, Quint just has to cut it loose with this machete. And... Um, but he doesn't like, even get to cut it loose. No, he yeah, you're right. the hand, and then the cleats finally give way, rip out. Yeah, um, and he slaps the machete on the side rail there, and um, that's uh, yeah, and this is uh, Chekhov's machete here, because um, that'll come back a little bit later. Um, and he's like, okay. We're going to head into the shallows because this thing is chasing us and we're going to use that to our advantage. But he's, you know, kind of pouring on the coal just a little bit too hard there and uh, basically destroys the engine doing this. Um, 
Yeah. Um, I don't know if he's doing that intentionally because we get the bit of him also smashing the radio. It's like he's purposefully stranding them so that, um, you know, this is like Columbus burning the ships, yeah. you know? Um, but yeah, uh, he, like I said, he, he destroys the radio because uh, Brody tries to call and, uh, you know, a mayday to the Coast Guard and uh, Quint doesn't want any bit of it. He wants the opportunity to make this happen, to take this stand right here and now. And, uh, yeah. I always uh, wondered if it's, do you think it's because he wants the money? Do you think it's because he has a personal vendetta against the shark from I, his I experience? Think a bit of a personal pride type thing, a little bit of that vendetta getting back at what killed so many of his friends, you know, essentially. Um, yeah, I, I think it's more that kind of stuff than the money. Um, this is like and, when you look at his, uh, when they're at his hut earlier in and it's like, you know, it's just graced with all these trophies per se of all yeah. the jaws of these sharks. And it's like his experience, what you don't really know what he was before he was in the army or the Navy. And they did the bomb delivery, but it's like he definitely dedicated himself to sharking after fact. And it's just like, mm -hmm. this is just the culminative big boy and you're your own worst enemy. Yep. Yeah. He, he's kind of getting his uh, Captain Ahab moment, right? Exactly. Um, this is his white whale. Um, so, yes, he destroys the engine. You know, the boat's kind of sinking now because uh, they have no power. They have no bilge pump. All they have is a hand-operated pump that's going to basically do them fuck all. Um, I love that he tries for a short period of time before he's just like, fuck it. And just he just throws it down. Yeah. Yep. Um, and understanding that they are sinking, that they are kind of fucked, Quint finally relents and asks Hooper what he can do with the stuff he brought it. And, um, he, the plan is to set up the shark cage and to try to poison the shark. And he's like, with this needle, you're not going to get that through the skin. He's like, no, I'm going to have to go into the cage and try to jab it in its mouth. And wow, that's terrifying. Um, but they, they, they get to work, uh, putting it together and, um, uh, Hooper gets into his suit and uh, he gets into the cage in the water there and he goes to, you know, spit on his uh, goggles so that they don't fog up and everything. And he's like, I got no spit. Got no spit. It's kind of that callback to him, you know, being so shocked uh, by what he saw in. Uh, you dried out. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so they send him down. And boy, this shark comes right away. And, you know, we get the, the theme music pumping. And it uh, kind of swims off again. And but, they introduce real shark footage. Which yes. starts to add to some believability at the end of the film. Which is super cool because you're just like, there's only so much you could do with the mechanical shark. Especially in the right. 70s. So I just remember when I was a kid, I was like, wait, that's a real shark and it just starts to register in my brain like real stakes, especially as a child. And it's sure. just like, uh, that's huge. It's huge. Oh, it's massive. Yes. Um, 
yeah, real shark footage from Australia, right? Um, so ultimately, the shark circles around and rams the cage from behind. He drops his uh, uh, poison there, um, and the shark just starts lacing into this cage. Um, and God nearly gets Hooper. It's like doing everything to mash its face into the opening that it's creating. And he's got just like a little diving knife that he's stabbing away at the nose of the shark with. And, uh, he, he does manage to slink away and, um, the book. Yeah, that's a shame. Um, more unlikable uh, in the book. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm I'm kind of sensing that uh, his character is a lot of fun in this movie, so I'm sure that's why they kept him alive. But yeah, he hides out on the bottom there. He manages to find his uh, needle, and he's just kind of waiting for his opportunity. But um, yes, uh, we cut back to the shark giving up on the cage. Uh, Brody and Quint they they wheel it up after it. Their pulley system basically gets ripped out by this shark. And they rig something to get it back up, and they realize Hooper's gone. They just let it go. This The stern of the boat is basically underwater at this point. And, um, yeah, um, let's see here. The, uh, the shark essentially launches itself onto the stern of the ship at this point. <laughs> yes. Um, shockingly so. Uh, the weight of this thing... All uh, three tons, I think they described, uh, basically pulls the ass end of the boat underwater and causes Quint to slide down into its maw. Um, But uh, he goes out like a G. He grabs that machete on his way. And even though he's getting torn in half, he's hacking away at this thing. Now, this goes back to seeing this movie for the first time on TV. Mm Mm-hmm. And experiencing it that way, I just remember being like, oh, okay. So, you know, he slides down. At some points, the shark gets him. And then he's just gone. When you see the unedited version of this, <laughs> you start to you start to think, man, you want to know why we're so fucked up, Joe? Because in the 70s and 80s, this was PG. You know it. Yeah, it took Gremlins and Temple of Doom to give us a PG-13. Uh, yeah. Yeah, like, this this is a fairly brutal PG film. I don't know how um, they did this shot where he's like bitten in half. It's so effective looking that there's like mm-hmm. teeth into his belly and then and then he gets dragged into the water. I'm just like I don't know how they really did that one cuz it looks damn good. Yep. Um I know there's several documentaries out there. It would be worth pouring into, you know, a couple of these. Um I think one of them's called like the shark is still working or something like that. Mm. Um, I think it's the shark's not working. Oh, (laughs) but uh, regardless, it might be worth giving one of these a whirl just to see if there's, um, you know, any insight into that. But yeah, man, Brody's hanging on for dear life back in the uh, entrance of the cabin there. And as the boat sinks just a little bit more, the, um, the uh, uh, shark smashes through the windscreen and he's doing everything he can to stay back. He grabs one of the, uh, the air tanks and he's smashing at the nose and he ends up kind of slipping and it goes into the shark's mouth. 
and um, the the shark gets out and uh, you know because it realizes it you know can only go so far into this uh, boat and as it gets out of there. Uh, Brody grabs the, the rifle and a boat hook and starts climbing the, uh, the rigging, the, the last little bit of this boat that's still sticking up into the air. And, um, the shark comes for him. He kind of staves it off there with the, um, with the boat hook. And, uh, the, the shark kind of circles away for a charging attack. And uh, we get Brody firing off rounds. He knows the air tanks in there. He's going to try to hit that thing. And he's like, come on, come on. And it's like, ultimately, um, we get the iconic line of, you know, just before the end, smile, you son of a bitch. And which is slightly covered by the sound of the gunshot and then the subsequent explosion. Ah, uh, but it's so good. <laughs> I always loved the uh, the way that they film it because it's like you've a got the shark coming in, which is its own mm-hmm. sense of suspense. But the way that sure. they just do that slow drop of the mast into the water, and it's just like mm-hmm. eventually it's going to get to the point where he's going to be under the water. There's no time left. There's yeah. no bullets left. It's so brilliant. This is done. a last stand. Yes, he's he probably only has so many rounds in that magazine. This is, you know, World War II era rifle. It's exactly. and uh just with every shot that doesn't connect, it's just one little bit more ratchet of tension there. Um but yeah, yeah, you get the the perfect smile, you son of a bitch and it connects and that shark uh goes boom. And we get this uh, old school dinosaur roll for, roar from uh, some film or other from way back when. Uh, Very ethereal music. Yeah, yeah. As the uh, like tranquil, mm-hmm. as gruesome as like you're literally looking at like buckets of blood pour out of the half yeah. of the body of a shark. Yeah, it's yeah. Like you're, gorgeous music. It's yeah. insane. Yep, and um, Brody is just. Elated, you know, he, he he laughs and cheers, but he's also a little out of it from the experience. And this is where we get Hooper uh, surfacing and he looks around and sees Brody and they, they reunite and he asks about Quint and Brody's like, no. And uh, yeah, they, they rig together a couple of those barrels uh, with some of the wreckage and they just start kicking to shore. Thankfully, they were uh, quite a bit closer at that point because, wow, they've been through some stuff. And, uh, yeah, uh, you get the sound of all the seabirds that have gathered just as soon as Peace. all of this viscera is out there. They know. Um, and, yeah, yeah, you, you get credits. And, again, it's that very much 1975 film where there are barely any credits um, because you don't have, you know, 13 different effects houses doing all the uh, computer generated shit for your film. Um, but yeah, it's also cool. I, I love that the credits have the end of the film play. And like the last thing you see is they get to shore. Yep. It's like you just get to see them do that final swim into the beach. And it's just like you get to know that they made it. Yep. And it's just like I, I miss I wish more movies would do stuff like that. But you can't because, like you said, I mean, what what are, what are the credits for a movie now? Ten minutes, 
It feels yeah, like it's the turned. better part of it at times. Yeah. And it's so rare, even into the 90s, that you get films that do that kind of thing. Like Silence of the Lambs has that shot that goes on through the entirety of the credits of Hannibal walking off after Dr. Chilton. Um, it, the lost but, art. Yeah. Yeah. It's. Um, Every once in a while, you get a film that brings something old back, you know, like uh, even the more recent Scream films doing the uh, the character shots along with the actors' names throughout the credits, which is something that you don't see every day, but something that they've done with almost all of the films. I think there's like maybe just one or two that don't. Uh, they definitely got to bring more of that stuff back. I appreciate it. Yeah. Uh, or the, um, the still frame of each character with the, um, paragraph that tells you, uh, what they went on to do or what they're doing today. Um, well, that's, that's staple great teen movie stuff from back. Yeah. Then. Yeah. yeah it is. But, uh, yeah, yeah. Fairly short credits and that's it. That's Jaws. Wham, bam. Uh, Thank you, man. Yeah. Nice, tight, barely over two hours. It's, um, you know, it, it doesn't overstay its welcome. My only complaint from the film was uh, just, you know, how you get this point where there is no more Mrs. Brody because she's great. But I also understand it's very much um, the second film. You know, yeah. it's this it's kind of like we talked about two films and uh, that is what it is. And it's still perfect for it. Tried to been replicated, tried to make sequels, and it's one movie. I mean, I have a list in my brain of films that just are not meant to be touched. Yeah. And it's just, don't make Jaws. Don't remake it. There's yep. so many it's, movies that should not be touched, and this is one of them. Yeah. It is kind of perfection. I think the reason that we haven't seen a remake of something like this is just the level of respect for this film. I'd like to think so, but often feels like if there's money to be made in something, respect yeah. doesn't matter anymore. Capitalism. No, yes, yes, you're right about that. <laughs> it's one of those things where, um, you know, if they tried to remake it, um, that portion of it, it'd be like, wait, no, if we remake this, then we're saying the quiet part out loud. Um, it's... <sighs> Who knows? <laughs> it's, but yeah, it's also a time capsule. Like, yeah, I think one thing I think that like a lot of harm movies will start to struggle with. And I think it'll be something that comes more often is you're going to start seeing directors really start to backdate and make almost like period piece horrors. Yeah. Oh, we have. Getting, it's getting harder <laughs> and harder and harder to make anything for like a modern day where you can't be like, okay, well, your cell phone will get you out of this or the ridiculous amounts of cameras all over cities would get you out of that. Yep. Yeah. Uh, so many horror films have to be set in locations or have some kind of contrivance where there is no cell signal um, or people end up losing their cell phone or it's taken away because otherwise, yeah, because otherwise there's no point to the film, right? Right. You have to have people make dumb decisions in a lot of horror films. Otherwise there's no plot. Um, it's, especially for slashers, right? Um, hell, uh, Prometheus is essentially a film that turns into a slasher film because of dumb decisions made by very smart people. Um, 
And I yeah, unapologetic decisions love that in film. movies were made in Prometheus. But I love that movie still. I actually yeah, really it's, like it. It's it's, but it's uh, just like yeah. I accept people are stupid. Like especially <laughs> when they discover new things. Like I, I that's what everyone's was like, well, these are scientists. So I was like, do you know how many scientists discover things by actually taking risks and making dumb decisions to come up with a result? Mm-hmm. Somebody has to mix the chemicals. Not everybody yep. survives. Somebody has to have uh, a serious bout of radiation sickness uh, when you're Marie Curie. Um, <laughs> yep. It's uh, people do some dumb things. In real life and movies. Yes. <laughs> oh, God. I wish I had uh, taken an opportunity to deep dive just a little bit more into, you know, some of the lore and, uh, you know, some of the uh, interesting trivia bits of this film, but I'm sure they've been talked to death. That's the problem with an older film like this. Um, there's, I just, you can watch, I mean, like I've on the, whatever collection of videos or DVDs or 4ks I have now, there's 50,000 extras on there. Film from different time periods. And it's like, I'll go back to when, you know, when I grew up watching this movie on TV down the shore, because there would always be that section of time when TNT would just play Jaws for like a week. And every five years, it felt like they'd regather surviving members of the cast, mm -hmm. the producers, directors, staff, and they would have like new interviews. So there's so much stuff across periods of time. Like everybody knows, it's just like, well, the shark's name's Bruce. What's the name? Shark's name's Bruce for? Well, it's after Steven Spielberg's lawyer because he's a cutthroat lawyer. It's like those little trivia things are so out there. Yep. So for me, it's like, it's more just a celebration of the film. Like yeah. that trivia is so well known by everybody. It's more just like, well, I get to share my excitement with you about a movie that we both find to be yep. really good, except yeah. missing a little Mrs. Brody at the end. Yeah. Yeah, it's I don't think that we needed a tearful reunion or anything, but uh you know, it, again, she's missed, but a minor minor complaint. Because holy shit, what a masterpiece. Um and I'm sure at the time, you know, it, it, there were people that wanted to dog on this film because of its huge commercial success because, you know, this isn't real cinema. How dare you call this cinema, um, you know, being a blockbuster. Um, but I mean, at the end of the day, it, it's just such a masterclass of building tension of unseen, uh, fear, you know, it, it, all the things that we talk about that come together to make this a lovely, happy accident of a film, um, I'm sure were kind of derided at the time. Um, and it's horror, damn it. I tell everybody to the end of my days, it is a horror movie. Yes, absolutely it is. Just for the sheer amount of gore alone. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, man, it, it does everything that a horror film is supposed to do. It's, uh, you know, it's like the same people that say the silence of the lambs is not a horror film. But what did you watch? <laughs> who, who would think that? I know. Right. It's, um, yeah, this is, um, again, kind of the perfect summer horror film. And, uh, again, one of those perfect watches for the, uh, pandemic, uh, for many, many reasons. Um, looking at you, Florida. Um, but, uh, <laughs> 
But, uh, you know, a lot of shark attacks going on down there conveniently right now. Hmm. That's, that's lovely. Um, (laughs) but I suppose anywhere where people go swimming, um, I I think there's actually been some increased shark attacks on the East coast as well. Recently. Mm. I don't know what the uptake is. Maybe it has something to do with water warming. I don't know well, what that would happen. And it could just be more of a focus on it because people are vacationing more with, you know, COVID being less of a thing. And uh, that's true. Two years of, although let's be honest, Joe, there were people that just didn't give a shit and were vacationing and going and doing it. Absolutely. Anyway. Right in the beginning there. Yep. Yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, there, there's a lot of things that uh, just with you know the pandemic no longer being so much an emergency any longer, it's uh, you know that you're seeing all sorts of facets of the economy uh, just again because of shifting trends uh, with what people are doing, um, just things. Not being exactly what we would like them to be, but we should have expected them to. Uh, looking at you, home improvement bubble. Um, but but you know, uh, Mary's running the show. Yes. Feels like yeah. Mary's been running the show for the last 25 years of my life. But that's the world we live in. Yes. If they ever do. Uh, you know, uh, uh, another sequel to Jaws. It, it'll be like his kid as the mayor, because of course, <laughs> nepotism. Yes, it'll be the, 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 the nepo baby. Yeah, nepotism. Yep, absolutely. Uh, Graham, you got any final thoughts on Jaws? I don't think there's anything I could say that hasn't been said before, <laughs> but it's just if you haven't seen it. You owe it to yourself, yeah, even though this conversation would have spoiled the whole thing for you. Yeah. But it's it's a masterpiece movie. It's a, it's a classic. It's my favorite movie of all time. And I find it, even with an old 70s mechanical shark, to be timeless and perfect. Yeah. it's. Uh, I think, the like we mentioned, the um, introduction of actual shark footage on top of the shots of the mechanical shark really sell this. Uh, and make it look real as hell. Um, I, I mean, sure. Are there a couple of cheesy shots of the shark? Yeah. Yeah. But uh, they, again, they make it work. Um, this is just absolute perfection. Um, yeah. I, I don't have anything else that I can think of to say that hasn't already been said about this film. So I will turn it back to you and say, Graham, where can people find you if uh, you would like them to find you? Uh, I mean, if you if you're so inclined, you could find me on Twitter, probably mar- remarking on movies, video games, and wrestling at uh, G hyphen bomb eighty two, and uh, yeah, that's it. I'm a simple man, simple taste. <laughs> Until Twitter implodes, we are the diehards that will stay on there. <laughs> I need an alternative. Yeah, I do too, but nothing really um, seems to be hitting in the same way still. And as long as there are people that I love interacting with on there, such as yourself, then I will probably stick around. It's the only reason. Yeah, there's such a great community of people that I have found through that hellhole of a, uh, you know, hellscape of a website. But uh, it is what it is. Lock mute. Yeah. And yeah. if I upset you, I give everyone carte blanche to block and mute me. Same. I take no offense. Same. Yep. 
Uh, so that being said, this has been Murders with Mertens, a horror film podcast. Thank you for letting us tickle your ear holes. Please like, share, and subscribe if you are so inclined. I'll be back soon enough with another episode, but until next time, stay spoopy, everyone.